Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Left Unread of the year of our Lord, 2024. 2024. Uh, What's up, folks? Yeah, man. Uh, this is Evan and I have made. Big so ups, we're actually 2024. We're, we're in our. We started this in 2021. Yeah. 21 to 22, 22 to 23, 23 to 24. So we're now entering our. We'll be entering our fourth year shortly in February. Yeah. Uh, and. It's kind of nuts. We've been doing this show for a while, and it's mm. changed a lot, and I think that mm -hmm. it's changed for the better, and yep. we've gone through some ups and some downs. Yeah. Uh, we have permanently closed the New Bedford branch of our yeah. studios. Correct. And yes, pa part, of, part of the delay is uh, I have uh, relocated and set up shop. We now are, we're now multi-state. Yeah. We're trans-state. Yeah. Uh, um, yep, so I'm broadcasting live, pre-recorded, from, uh, the beautiful city of Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. One of the most fascist cities in the country. We're trying something different. <laughs> Evan, Evan's part of the show is pre-recorded, and I'm recording live, trying to match up to the pre-recording. This is all improv. This is all improv. Oh, fuck, you just <laughs> said that. So, okay, we're trying, we're trying. Uh, so you might notice some, <clears throat> some odd interactions here but yeah uh evan evan is now what he's often wanted to be evan's had a weird fascination with rhode island for a long time and i'm now a rhode islander and you're now a rhode a Islander. and i like that you more. didn't deny that you acknowledge that you've had a kind yeah. of a rhode island fetish and you yeah. you're now i mean i love coffee milk i yeah. love stuffies i love uh you know what i mean i love pizza strips he's talking about stuffed quahogs okay folks don't be fucking oh, yeah, weird stuffies. he likes yeah. those too but like yeah that's not what he meant you guys yeah mm -hmm. um yeah i think that really what it is is that you've got this sort of inferiority complex and the idea of being from like a small shitty state appeals to you because then you can you know I feel justify like we don't need to play armchair uh psychiatrist <laughs> but okay <laughs> so i really i'd like to talk about your relationship with your dad for a second yeah. and um no, but I... I <laughs> He's also a big fan of this city. Yeah, Providence is great. I love Providence. No. Um, when I'm yeah. talking about Rhode Island, 90% of the time, I just mean the capital. Oh. And the rest yeah. of it, you know, there's it's fine. Yeah, yeah but seriously, this state is fascist as shit. Mm -hmm. There's just fucking... There's cameras all over the city. And, like, generally in, like, poor neighborhoods, too, to just ticket people while they're driving. Now, these aren't, like police tickets they're civil tickets yeah now here's the big thing and like they'll like you'll just be driving you see a flash behind you like i'm pretty sure i got one the other day and i was going like 33 mm -hmm. in a school zone but it was a saturday <laughs> and it, there was nobody else on the road pretty yeah. sure i got a ticket i haven't seen that yet now here's the thing these aren't uh police tickets and you know so they, they don't count against <laughs> your driving record however i don't know if it's just a rhode island thing or providence but court fees, you have to pay them even if you win. So the tickets are like $50, and then the court fees are $35. If you just accept a ticket, it's $50. If you go to fight the ticket in court and you lose, you have to pay $35 plus $50. And if you win, you just have to pay $35. So they're just like fucking ticketing. <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> so they're just like racking up the bill, like just ticketing like people yeah. in poor neighborhoods constantly. <clears throat> and now the fucking mayor wants to put in... Uh, more cameras to I shit you not fucking ticket people if they honk too loudly, ticket people if they listen to their music too loudly, 
uh, ticket people that get caught in intersections, and they say, well, we'll have people monitoring them. So if it's somebody that aggressively drove into an intersection and got caught, they won't get ticketed. Bullshit. They're just going to ticket everybody. Interesting. Um, and it's just like, yeah, they're just like trying to rack up all of these fucking like, all of these like ticket fees from like poor people. Wow, that's so odd. Yeah. These cameras aren't downtown. They're not in any of the business areas. They're in like South Providence. And yeah. Shit. Huh. Yeah, it sounds like it sucks, man. I'm not gonna not gonna no. lie to you. And now like, uh, it floods every time it rains too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then obviously there's the uh, the collapsing bridge that's on one ninety five. That was like a national story. Speaking of, so really quickly because so mm-hmm. we've actually got folks. Just so you're prepared yeah. before you get too far into this one, we're back to no. your regularly scheduled yes. programming. I have a written and researched episode mm-hmm. here. Correct. So don't worry. We're we're just talking because we like each other now. This yes. isn't a, we're not stalling for time here. Um, yeah. and, and I just and I also want the fascist dogs of Providence, Rhode Island, to know I'm coming for them. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, he doesn't mean it in the weird way. He's just well, that's just how Evan talks sometimes. Yeah. Uh, have you heard about the locust thing? <laughs> no. What? Okay. So all right. So locusts. Not locusts, I'm sorry, cicadas, which are, okay. some people call locusts in different areas, but they're they're mm-hmm. uh, a different kind of... Uh, Similar loud flying beetly bug. Yeah, really loud. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so cicadas or cicadas, depending on where you are. We always call mm-hmm. them cicadas here. I don't know if that's a regional thing or what, but um, there are many different types. And in Massachusetts, and I think mm-hmm. largely in Rhode Island too, we mainly just have annual cicadas. So we get the mm-hmm. ones that borrow for a year. And sometimes they're they're down underground for longer than that, but they don't yep. have like, they're not on a schedule. So some erupt every year. So we get yep. cicadas every year. But famously, there are types of cicadas, and they may or may not be the same species, but they're divided up along the 13-year and the 17-year cycle broods. And cicadas yep. uh, live in these large broods which cover geographic areas and they tend uh, when they are of the the long nesting variety that's on like a schedule where they all erupt at the same time either uh go down for 13 years and stay in their pupil stage before they you know come out breed die whatever or 17 years right and one geographic area is generally one or the other multiple broods don't generally exist in the same area yeah. Uh, however, this year, for the first time in 221 years, in uh-huh. the states of Illinois and Wisconsin, both a 17-year and a 13-year brood are erupting in the same summer. Oh my god! And so it's they're predicting Cicada Gate. Yeah, Cicada Geddon, cool. 2024. And I have a cousin who lives in Illinois. And I uh, called him, and he seemed really annoyed. I was like, hey, man, have you heard about that? And he's like, what, the cicadas? And I was like, yeah, uh, it's so crazy. Hasn't happened since, you know, 18, 18, what is it, 221 years? So that would be 1803. And he was just like, yeah, man, it's probably going to be gross. And I was like, yeah, but uh, anyway, no one cares. But it's interesting. Yeah. Because it doesn't happen very often. Yep. And frankly, we don't get any of them in Massachusetts. And I think maybe you do in corners of Rhode Island or maybe not at all. But So I don't know. Any of our Midwestern listeners, uh, let us know what the deal is. If you're excited or freaked out, because uh, all intents, like all, all accounts, are that you're going to be using a snow shovel to shovel bug carcasses out of your driveway. That's gross. Yeah, super gross. I'm not jealous that I won't be in it. Yeah, I mean I that, that was like when it. we had the the gypsy moth moth caterpillar yeah. explosion a few years ago. Yeah, there was also remember, one um, when we were kids. Yeah, there was one when we were kids, and then there was one a few years ago. And I remember because I used to work at this uh, facility, like a research facility, um, where they couldn't spray the the facility with any pesticides whatsoever, like anywhere around it. Yeah. 
And so, like, driving through the parking lot, like, dude, like, you're just fucking, it's just Gypsy Moth Holocaust. Yeah, you could just like, hear You're it, just, hear like, it. squishing them constantly. Like, you're yeah. walking through the parking lot, you couldn't miss them. Like, you were just stepping on them nonstop, just squishing them, like, fucking And if you touch grapes. those, they give you a rash. Yeah. It's not fun. No. Well, anyway. <sighs> yeah, what was that, 2015? Like that. that sounds like, about right. Team. Yeah, because I was with a friend of ours, and he asked me to go for like a not even a hike, yeah. like a walk on a woodland trail. And we got about a hundred yards in, and uh, there were so many moths because they had. That was had, me. I think that was us. No, it wasn't you. You weren't with me, but Uh-oh. it was our other friend. Wow. Uh, and yeah. uh, he was like, "Yeah, I can't do this. Too many bugs. Got to go." And I was like, "What? It's cool. <laughs> they're they're moths. They're beautiful." And he was like, "Was it the stretch in Brick Woods?" Because I. No. I Oh, I went to go walk on there on, like, a Friday after work one day. This was in and time. Yeah, I, oh, yeah. I, this was, like, I got, like, 100 yards in, and I was like, yeah, this is uh, pretty vile. I'm going. Yeah, Destruction <laughs> Brook Woods was awesome, though. I do miss yeah. those days. I haven't been down yeah. there. I, I do go to the Frank Knowles Little River Reserve sometimes. And I won't tell nice. you guys when in case anybody wants to ambush me and kill me because they're <laughs> yeah. a yeah. crazed super fan and they want my semen. Yeah, I tried to suck your dick at yeah, gunpoint. <laughs> I've, had, I've had my dick sucked in those woods. Yeah. It was pretty kick-ass. Yeah, I, I finger-blasted the girl in those woods. We're both describing the same event from different <laughs> points of view. I don't know if you guys... <laughs> anyway, uh, why don't we start Yeah, let's show. just fucking do the show. <laughs> Um, so welcome back folks. It's 2024 and we've, you know, had a lot going on in our lives and haven't been writing and researching episodes for a while. Thank you for bearing with us. We're back. Uh, Mongols. Your boys are back. I know. And it's exciting. I've got the sixth installment of the Mongols series. I didn't forget about it. I'm not abandoning it. I love this series. It's the best thing I've ever done for this show. So, uh, I've got a really fucking cool one for you this, this, this week and... Uh, I figure without further ado, unless there's anything you'd like to interject before we do this, you want to just fucking kick it off? No, let's do it. All right. So uh, this week, we are returning to the life and times of the mighty Genghis Khan. Uh, This episode is a continuation of a series, as I mentioned, that we last visited uh, forever ago in episode 96 of this podcast, which I think was in like September, which is insane. I, it's recommended, especially with this series, that you listen to them in order, as we won't devote a huge amount of time to recap. And just to remind you all, uh, all of our series episodes are compiled in the Spotify playlist LU series for ease of access. 
Uh, but we also, within the episodes, tend to reference the last episode in the series. So yeah. uh, I, I should have them in front of me right now. I don't. But the Mongols – actually, I'll just tell you right now because I have that I have that playlist mm-hmm. available to me. Yes. So if you wanted to listen to this and you don't have the playlist capabilities, bear with yep. me. Here we go. Episodes 79, 81, 84, 91, and 96 – those are the previous five episodes in the Mongols series. And now here we are in episode 108, and we're back. And I'm going to try to do a few of these pretty close together over the next few weeks and, and kind of wrap this up because I don't want this to drag out any longer. So uh, here we are. We're back, and we're ready to rock. Okay. Okay. Let's rock. All right, let's. So our story resumes in 1210 CE, which is once again – the Year of the Horse by East Asian Reckoning. Now, remember, at the start of our of our series here, Temujin, our protagonist, was born in the Year of the Horse. Yep. Well, that was now 48 years ago. And Temujin, the little boy, Ooh, that beautiful on. baby boy, yeah, he's now the man, Genghis Khan. And I'm this middle-aged man. Yeah, I mean, for those, for 1210, he's definitely more than middle-aged, and he comes from a hard-ass part of the earth. I mean, he's old. By a lot of people's yeah. reckoning at this point, you know, and by doing well for himself. For a lot of these guys, this is like late stage career shit. He's entered. He's 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 done it, right? Yep. If you're a step con from any other time and place, you've kind of you've you've made it happen. You've beaten all your yep. rivals. You're the undisputed lord of of your area, <coughs> and nobody's fucking with you. But yep. you know, hopefully by now you've all gathered, and you Evan have gathered mm-hmm. that this guy is built different i mean you've heard of him right he's yep. famous for a reason yep so it's been roughly four years since the unification and foundation of the new mongol ulus or mongol nation which we explored in depth in the last installment of this series back in september that episode focused almost exclusively on civil and military reforms instituted by the khan following his unification of the northern steppe Yep. And while stuff like that is super interesting and I felt really necessary, uh, let's be real. We're doing a series about Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire. You want what I want. You want conquest. You want glorious battle. You want bloodshed. You want violence. No. Well, you're in luck because as it turns out, Genghis Khan wants those things too. You see, he might be the new big man in his little slice of the world, but that doesn't mean that he's a true big baller yet. In yeah. fact... The moves that he's been making have aroused the interest of a powerful neighbor to the south, perhaps his strongest rival yet, the Golden Khan of the Jurched. Now, the Jurched are a nomadic people, much like the Mongols, though for nearly a century they have adapted to the posh life of sedentary rulers of a kingdom in what is now northern China and Inner Mongolia, which is part of Northern China. So you'll hear me kind of refer to it as both. Having long exercised control over the Northern Steppe tribes through their mastery over trade routes and the flow of goods north from China, the Jurchids expect submission from any upstart Khan making a name for themselves up in those necks of the woods. That neck of the woods? Yeah, that neck of the woods. Yeah, that neck of the woods. Those necks, up in those necks. Yeah. Uh, Getting up in those necks, dude. (laughs) (laughs) This puny Genghis Khan will be no different. He will bend the knee, acknowledge his oh. place, just as those before him have done, and the northern borders will remain secure. At least, that's what the Jurchhead think. Yeah, he's not going to be the one uh, getting on his knees. No, I don't know. Not unless there's some mm. fucking booty. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, unless he's eating their ass, you yeah, know what dude, I mean. Unless he's gonna dive head first into some fucking butt. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the Jurched because they're kind of interesting. Yes. So in twelve ten, which is the year we're in, the year yes. of the horse, fourth year of the new Mongol Ulus, the golden Khan of the Jurched Kingdom sends a delegation north to the realm of Genghis Khan. A new golden Khan had ascended to the throne of the Jurched Kingdom. And it's the perfect opportunity to establish ties with this new northern lord, Genghis Khan or whatever, and let him know what the established order was and has been for the previous century. The Jurched, who will centuries later uh, be known as the Manchus and will rule the Qing dynasty of China. So the Jurched are also a big deal. Like they stick around in this region and they later, the name changes and they become known as the Manchus, but the same people. Mm -hmm. And we talked about them in our episodes about the Opium War. Uh, the Qing mm -hmm. Dynasty. So Way that's, back when. That's them. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. And I think later well, in this script I write down the specific episode. I was so. like back in left and red Mark 1 days. Yeah, it was, that was Mark 1. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so they, they had swept forth from the forests of Manchuria nearly a century before in 1125 CE and conquered a vast swath of land in what is now northern China. They conquered this land from the Khitan who we have mentioned briefly in previous episodes, uh, who ruled the uh, what is now often known as the Liao Dynasty. Um, but we'll refer to that in the episode as the Khitans because uh, sometimes when we use like the later Chinese nomenclature for these dynasties, it gets a little confusing. Um, and for our purposes, I don't know. I think it's worthwhile to kind of make it clear that these were not native dynasties um, and in a lot of the source material that i'm using that's how they're referred to um, also worth noting uh the the jurchen or the jurched uh dynasty that we will refer to as like the jurched kingdom or the jurched dynasty throughout most of the episode uh has also later been known as the jin dynasty or the great jin dynasty um, so if you're looking this up a lot of these different dynasties have many different names um and uh Chinese sources would later give them uh, often um, like posthumous, the emperors would often get like posthumous Chinese names and the dynasties would get Chinese names. Um, so it gets a little confusing. So to keep things simple, I'm just going to refer to them as the Jurchheads uh, because the ruling people were Jurchheads. But you could also find this under the Great Jin um, or the Jin Dynasty. And this it's it, China's history prior to this um, has been kind of nuts. It's not as cut and dry as people sometimes think. With like, you know, like set dynasties. There's lots of warring kingdom periods and eras where you know foreign uh, or non-Han ethnic groups took control and whatever. And that just sort of stretches all the way back to the Han Dynasty, uh, which is sort of the last time that this the whole the closest that you come prior to this with like all of you know or most of you know modern china being unified under one state they did this in keeping with a centuries old tradition of tribal peoples in this region growing in power seizing control of the region becoming sedentary and weak and rich and fat and then eventually themselves being conquered by another hungry young still strong and kick-ass tribal you know, group that came <clears> in. <throat> yeah. So from their capital city in Zhongdu, which is modern-day Beijing, 
The church had ruled a prosperous kingdom, which was perfectly poised as a sort of buffer between the brutal steps of the north, uh, which Genghis Khan has come to dominate, and the civilized effete lands of the Song dynasty in the south, sometimes known as the Southern Song or the Southern Song, uh, which would seem more recognizably Chinese to modern observers. That's the dynasty that's sort of the uh, inheritor of, you know, a thousand years of Chinese history. Uh, those Su Shen Yun is going to dance about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, they're not, they're 5, not getting too years soaked of civilization the reborn. <laughs> now, well. There are still Han Chinese people, the people that we would think of as, you know, quote-unquote ethnically Chinese. Now, China is filled with many, many, many different ethnic groups. Uh, but mm-hmm. the the largest and most dominant and what we would think of as, quote-unquote, ethnically Chinese, the Han, they're still all over this region. And many of the subjects of the Jurchheads are Han Chinese. But the ruling dynasty are these steppe people, these Manchurian Jurchhead nomads. Uh, so the Jurchheads themselves, uh, they formed the elite of the kingdom. Um, but everything else under them was just peasants. And some of these were, as I said, Han Chinese. Some of these were Khitan people who are still living there and used to be in control. And they're kind of now chafing under the yoke of these new rulers. Um, also people from all sorts of different ethnic groups. There are, there are, you know, people that would seem more like Mongols, whatever. Um, but they're largely a sedentary peasant farming population. So they're not still living Mm -hmm. a traditional nomadic life. Their kingdom with roughly 50 million inhabitants in 1210, was massive by any estimate, uh, though still slightly smaller than the southern Song, which boasted approximately 60 million inhabitants. So at this point, this part of the world contains, between the southern Song and the Jurchid Kingdom, contains like something like one-fifth to two-fifths of the people on the planet, to give you perspective. It's a lot of people. Jesus. Yeah, huge. So Very now that you know that. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. Good. <laughs> Did you see, by the way, the addition I've made? Yeah, what is it? Uh, John McCain and Sarah Palin? Yeah. Yeah, it's kick-ass, dude. Sarah Palin would have been the hottest vice president ever. Yeah. You know, Would've. just putting it out there. Yep. Instead, who it's isn't. still Joe Biden. I'll tell you who isn't the fucking hottest president ever. <laughs> Actually, no, it's Spiro Agnew. Yeah, oh, Spiro's <laughs> a good call. He had the <laughs> hairline of all hairlines, man. That was yeah. an interesting look. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So, with this large population of 50 million people, give or take, mm-hmm. uh, came a super large standing army with which they exercised control over the region. However, yes. as the Jurched Khan and Genghis Khan both understood, their true power comes not from their military might, but from their control over the flow of goods from the Song in the south to the steppe in the north. They yeah. sit right in between those who would consider themselves more civilized and those who they would consider less civilized. And they control the spigot that allows silks and wood and gold and spices and whatever else you can fucking imagine manufactured goods from the south to the north. They control the spigot. Yeah. And whether or not it flows or not. Exactly. Yeah. So we've talked about the fact that the Mongols and their subordinates on the steppe are not manufacturers. They're not making, I mean, they're very ingenuitive. Uh, they're making things, but it's anything that's not made from like wood or animal parts or mm-hmm. bone, which is an animal part. They're not really doing it. They're not metal workers. They're not doing any kind of prefabricated anything. Everything's pretty simple. And they can make brilliant stuff, and it works really well. But it's not pretty. They don't do the art thing, really. They're kind of yeah. just like they're doing what they got to do to survive, right? They're artists with the recurve bow. Oh, yeah. Their bows are magnificent. Splendid. That's their artwork. Their artwork is killing you. Yep. Yep. And killing you 
with panache. Yeah, with flair. Uh, Onkan, who you might remember from previous episodes, who had been the adopted father of Temujin, and at his time was the most powerful step Khan, had kowtowed to the golden Khan of the Jurched to ensure a steady supply of trade goods and wealth from the south. And yeah, it had paid off. Onkan had indeed been rich and powerful by the standards of a step Khan. Sort of like I said at the start, like, by most, you know, throughout most of history, Genghis Khan has sort of made it. He's sort of reached the top. No one else is really reaching higher than what he's got. So mm-hmm. if that's, like, as high as you aim, then yeah, he's looking pretty good. And Onkan was looking pretty good. But Genghis Khan clearly has higher ambitions. His masterful rise to power and the reforms of the past four years sort of say as much about him. So while he clearly saw himself as something more than the petty rulers that came before him, he also understood that the primary function of a step Khan is to lead his people to victory in battle and to secure for them all of the goods that they need, not only to survive, but also to prosper. They want that stuff. They don't, it's not like the Mongols don't know there's good shit down south. Just because they don't make it doesn't mean they don't want it. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? I don't know how to make an iPhone. Yeah. So we can all kind of sympathize with this. They've got that consumer mindset. Yeah. You know, really. Untapped markets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The difference is they didn't really consider what if we just worked hard and spent all of our money on this stuff. Uh, They took a more direct approach. So the survival and prosperity of his people was his chief earthly duty uh, as a Mm -hmm. con. And in the pursuit of this, he had kind of two choices in front of him. Yep. The delegation that has now arrived from the Jurchhead Golden Con presents one. You can bow to us, as Onkan did before you. You can come to Jongdu. You can prostrate yourself before the magnificent Golden Khan. Accept yep. him as your better and the master of your people. Admit that you are his slave and servant. And we Put might toss you the, on. the scraps from our table as you rule your northern shithole. No. Yeah, get your knee pads on. Yeah, start sucking. And Genghis Khan knew how to kowtow. And for those of you who don't know, kowtowing isn't just a term. It's a specific thing. It's a... It's bowing and, and, and literally touching your head to the floor, like prostrating yourself yeah. as low as possible. It's the traditional way of bowing before an East Asian monarch, uh, yep. literally getting yourself as low as possible, touching your head to the floor. For our um, uh, weekly uh, reference to Crusader Kings, there was a um, an expansion for CK2 um, that allowed you to kowtow yourself to the Chinese emperor as one of the things. It, like China didn't become part of the map. However, uh, you could have diplomacy with China, and one of the uh, the little event options that you could have would be to kowtow to the Emperor of China. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah they liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so Genghis Khan knew how to do this, right? He, he's had some ups and downs in life. He, he's scraped, he's groveled. He did it, mm-hmm. uh, if you might recall, before the great mountain Burkan Khaldun. And the eternal blue sky uh, when he was trying to figure out what he should do about rescuing Borte, his wife. Yep. And he had sworn himself in service to Onkan. And heck, he'd even been a slave for a little while. I remember that. Yep, I do. But now he's nearly 50 years old. His joints probably aren't feeling that great. He'd been proclaimed the master of his people by a Kurultai and had devoted himself to strengthening and improving the new Mongol nation ever since. He'd brought others under his wing, too. Siberian tribes to the north, Koreans to the east, to the west, the Uyghurs, and more recently the Tanguts, who are a mm-hmm. Tibetan people who had provided the great Khan with his first real experience in conquering cities. So if option A was to prostrate himself before the golden Khan and to beg for mercy, 
He's not really liking the sound of option A. Unfortunately, though, a side effect, an unforeseen side effect of his unification of the steppe tribes is that it had halted the periodic raiding into southern lands that had brought that trickle of goods up from the south, right? Like, now that everyone's under his control, people aren't just doing what they want. They're doing what he wants. And he mm. hasn't been letting people go off doing raids. So he's like, okay, well, we need the riches. The, the raiding has stopped. turned closed. Yeah, the spigot's closed. And so we got to look for option B. And what's option B? Open the spigot again. Yeah, and how are you going to open it? With the bow, buddy. With the bow and the horse and the fucking power of the Mongol horde. You're going to have to let the artists use their tools, so to speak. Yeah. They don't like to paint. Yeah. They don't sculpt. Nope, not really into sculpting. But they're, they can shoot a bird out of the sky on a cloudy day. No, not doing too much metallurgy. No. No, they're not smoking reefer. Yeah, they might yeah, have been, they, actually. yeah. I don't, I don't, that's a good point. I don't know if they were. Yeah. I bet they would have if they had it, though. The Mongols seem like yeah. they would have been fucking crazy to party with. Yeah, dude, just taking a hit of the cosmic joint and then yeah. <laughs> raiding. <laughs> Dream blunt rotation. It's just you and Genghis Khan just facing yeah, the blunt together. Yeah, just four Genghis Khans. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> oh, man.
So, as I mentioned before, before the Jurched had conquered their kingdom, uh, these lands had been ruled by a branch of the Kitan people. Now, the Kitan are much closer culturally and ethno-linguistically to the Mongols than the Jurched. And when Genghis Khan assumed power, uh, Kitan nobles began defecting from the Jurched kingdom, but also sort of reaching mm-hmm. out to him from the Kitan lands uh, on the other side of the river and petitioning the Khan to invade on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And initially, he refused because he was kind of like, I don't necessarily like that. Like, I don't want to do this for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. If it made sense for me, maybe I would, but I don't, I don't know. However, now it's it's 1210. And the old Golden Khan has died, and his young son has ascended the throne, and he's decided to send this delegation north, and they're demanding that Genghis Khan kowtow before him and assume his whatever rightful place as a slave to the Jurched. And so, yeah, maybe he would have considered some sort of negotiation or Mm -hmm. trade, but a demand? An order? You're going to order Genghis Khan to come bow to you? He doesn't do that What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? Yeah, yeah. And haven't you heard? No. He's not doing that anymore. That's not his thing anymore. He doesn't. He you doesn't do that. Thing to call me Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> so the secret history of the Mongols uh, states that upon receiving his orders, his orders, which is ballsy, oh. from the Jurched yeah. emissary, Genghis turned south towards Jurched lands and spit on the ground, and then he he started cussing out the Jurcheds and their lame ass mm-hmm. bronze Khan or tin Khan or whatever he calls himself. No. And then he hopped on his horse right in front of the emissaries and galloped off towards the north, covering the sputtering diplomats in a cloud of good old-fashioned steppe dust. Yeah. And everyone understood. You know, no one was confused by this gesture. In in steppe warlord speak, this means I'm going to fucking come kick your ass. I'm going to fight yeah. you. Right? It's on. But before he, he goes to war, he has to maintain the precedent that he himself has set that any major decision like this should be decided by a Kurultai. So mm-hmm. in 1211, he summons one at his home base on the Karelen River. Yeah. So everybody knows the issue at hand. Word's gotten around. Genghis is... It's, it's, like, uh, it's like in the Matrix when it's like, Morpheus is fighting Neo. It's like that. Everyone's no. like, yo, he's going to go fight fucking the Golden Khan. Right? Yeah. So when he calls a Kurultai, nobody has any doubt what the issue at hand is. And if you guys will remember, a Kurultai is just a big meeting. Showing up as a yes vote, not showing up as a no vote. You it's a big up, circle jerk on the step. Yeah, and if enough people show up, you start talking shop, you make plans to do whatever you it bait, is you're voting on. Group you bait. have feast, you party, and then you go and you do the thing. Yep. So merely attending is tantamount to a vote in favor of war. Now, one of the amazing things about Genghis mm. Khan is, is also kind of on the surface one of the most contradictory. So for somebody who's going to be responsible for, like, an unprecedented degree of, of death and human suffering, like on a global mm-hmm. scale, uh, the lives of his own people and those that are sworn to his service, those that are already under his protection, mm-hmm. have always been of paramount importance to him. And so he didn't demand that his armies die for him. He insisted, rather, that they fight to survive and to live. Mm-hmm. Conversely, even the lowliest member of the horde had some sort of voice in deciding whether to fight or not to fight. And once the matter was decided, they were expected to obey his orders without question. But until the matter is final, their lives are their own. They can decide to vote against. And if people don't show up, he doesn't go to war. But I think he kind of knows. He's, he's, he's a critical darling. Uh, people are really riding high on Genghis Khan right now. They're liking his shit. They're, mm-hmm. they're digging what he's been doing. And frankly, yep. he's been racking up dubs. He, he's got a pretty sterling record up to this point. So 
I think he kind of has a good idea that folks are going to show up. They like the way he handled those diplomats. It was very Mongol of him. They're like, you yep. hear he fucking spit, and then he fucking rode away right in their face. Dude. Fucking hell yeah, dude. <laughs> so, I, saw, I, I saw him spit. I saw, him, I saw I it saw, happen, I saw, dude. I, I, felt saw the the, I felt the spray in the wind. Yeah, I was, I was part of the spit. Yeah, dude. I was, was so sick. Spit. It was fucking heady, dude. <laughs> Honestly, though, brief aside, dude, uh, curl time must have been so fucking dope. Yeah, man. Um, it would have probably been crazy. I feel like it would have potentially been really violent and scary sometimes. Yeah, it would have been sick. Not, not under Genghis Khan, though, now that I think of it. Like, he definitely, cool. people people respected his shit. And uh, it probably would have been cool, yeah. If there's a period cool of time style. I could go back to and, like, witness... It would be this. Like, I would go back to see this stuff in a second. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I would also need to understand, like, Middle Mongolian and, and all kinds of... Yeah. It just... I don't know. But it would be cool. It'd be cool as hell. Yeah. I would not go anywhere in Europe in the Middle Ages. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, It'd be gross and stinky. Coral ties now, at this point in the story, might have been yeah. fine. Coral ties by the end of this episode, that's mm-hmm. where shit started to get extravagant. But yeah. we'll get there. Yeah. So uh, once it became kind of clear that mm-hmm. there were enough people there, public discussions took place, uh, held according to the decimal ranking system that the Great Khan had implemented. So if you remember, everything is groups of 10. So yep. you yourself as a member of his horde belong to a group of 10 men, and you're led by one of you. And then that group of 10 is grouped up in 10 groups of 10. It's a group of 100 and so on and so forth. All the way up to the top, it's 10,000, that's an army. So, higher-ranking men would meet and discuss plans, and then they're expected to go back to their lower-down ranking group uh, and explain the situation and discuss it with them and so on and so forth all the way down to the bottom. So, in this way, every member of the army is informed as to the goals and the purpose behind basically every battle or at least every war that they're fighting. Also, he was uh, sure to invite Uyghurs and his new Tangut uh, friends and their delegations to the Kurultai to make it clear that they also had a voice and were privy to discussion if they were to be summoned to fight for their new Khan. Yep. So once it seemed clear that the men were with him, the Khan retreats to meditate and fast on a nearby mountain for guidance from Tengri, the eternal blue sky. Yes. Similarly, all those who gathered, in addition to the Khan, they removed their hats and their sashes, the two symbol- symbols of manhood, and they fasted for three days, uh, awaiting their Khan to return from the mountaintop. On the yep. fourth day, Genghis Khan returned with the promise of the eternal blue sky. The Mongols would have victory and vengeance. So having received word that the Mongols were mobilizing for war, word has it that the Jurched court openly mocked the notion. And so here I'm going to quote from Jack Weatherford. Our empire is like the sea. Yours is but a handful of sand. A Chinese scholar recorded the Jurched Khan as saying in reference to Genghis Khan, How can we fear you? he asked. And he would soon have his answer. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah he would soon fear him. <clears throat> yeah, 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 yeah. The fear's coming. Oh, yeah, this guy might not. Whatever, we'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the Mongol army that marched south to attack the Jurched was a very different uh, and much improved force than that which had won the Khan his earlier victories. For one, they had swelled in number, not only uh, with conquered tribes like the Naiman and the Tartar people, but also new Uyghur allies and the recently conquered Tanguts. 
Cool. Um, to talk a little bit about the Tanguts, uh, just because it's kind of relevant to the rest of this this campaign. Between 1207 and 1209, and remember, pre- present day at this point in the story is 1211, so just a few years prior, Genghis yeah. Khan had waged war against the Tangut, who were a Tibetan people from the west in what is now Gansu Province, China. Their yeah. army was twice as strong as the army the Khan brought against them, and they occupied fortified cities, which is something that Genghis Khan had never encountered in battle before. Or, or maybe actually just encountered in his life. Mm-hmm. Siege technology was obviously well established elsewhere in the world uh, by the 13th century, but was basically totally unknown to the Mongols. No experience yep. with it. So they had been forced to improvise. Now, famously, they had attempted to divert the flow of the Yellow River to flood yep. the Tangut capital and had inadvertently flooded their own camp instead. It's kind of a disaster. They felt a little silly doing that. Yep. But rather than admit defeat... They had instead buckled down and perfected this technique. They would go on to conquer that city. And then they, they keep doing this. This becomes like a classic Mongol move. Yeah. Are you a city near a river? Are the Mongols approaching? Better check your shit. They're going to divert that river. Yeah. 100% of the time. They're going to do it. You're not going to know what to do about it. It's gonna. It's just going to work. It's going to work yep. every time. And this is just an example of like the Mongols, what they're really good at. They don't invent stuff, but they, they sure do adopt things. They're not... Yeah. They're not uh, uh, prissy about, you know, taking other people's ideas. And they don't even feel like they need to pretend they were their own ideas. They're like, yo, that was a great idea. I'm, I'm going to use yep. that respectfully. Yeah. And they do. Respectfully, I will do that shit. Will, oh, that shit looked really cool. I'm going to do that shit. And yeah. they do it. They do it all the time. It's kind of what they're best at. So they had gone on to subdue the Tanguts, who are now marching beside them against the Jurched. Against the Jurched. And they brought with them more advanced knowledge of siege warfare. So when they were fighting the Tanguts, they encountered their first taste of Chinese engineering, uh, which the Tanguts had some mm-hmm. access to, things like catapults, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll get more mm-hmm. into that you know, later when they come in. But. So now their first hurdle in conquering the Jurchheads was to conquer the Gobi Desert, which is sort of the physical land barrier between Mongolia proper and what's now known as Inner Mongolia which is northern China. Yeah. Inner Mongolia is part of China, folks. Yeah. Now, uh, so that spreads between the steppe where Chinggis Khan is from and this sort of southern region where the Jurchids rule. Now, the Mongol army was ideally suited to long travel over rough, inhospitable terrain, and they proved this in their Gobi crossing. So, you know, the Jurchids, I think, were kind of hoping that the Gobi Desert would be this sort of barrier but the Mongols are just like, I don't know, man, cold, hot. It's kind of the same fucking thing. Like, let's just mm-hmm. let's just do this shit. And part of why that was so easy for them is that each man <clears throat> carried on his person basically everything needed for survival on his own, including items to repair or make new equipment for himself. Yep. And their army is also entirely made up of cavalry. They don't have infantry, which is sort of unique to armies of this period. And it allows yep. for an unprecedented degree of mobility. So the Mongol army that set out on the Jurchhead campaign is approximately 65,000 men strong, entirely mounted. By contrast, the Jurchhead had at least that many cavalry, and then on top of that, another eighty to 90,000 infantry. However, infantry is slow, and sedentary armies, even their cavalry, require complicated baggage trains and supply routes to function. I mean, remember, these Jurchheads have had 100 years to forget what it meant to fucking be barbarians out in the woods. Yeah. The Mongols, <clears throat> they haven't forgotten. They don't got to worry about supply routes. They're still about that life. They don't bother no. with supply routes. They don't fucking bother with that shit. 
So a lot of people have probably heard Marco Polo's uh, Mongol Polo. Uh, famously heard uh, Marco Polo's uh, assertion that a Mongol army could travel for 10 days without stopping to make camp. Um, this is probably an exaggeration, but the Mongols loved yeah. that. The Mongols loved when people made shit up about them because they were like, yeah, dude, make us sound as gangster as possible. Yeah. No problems. They would do it about themselves. They made up lies about themselves all the time. So a lot of the things you've heard, like the horrible ways they executed people, whatever, it's probably calculated propaganda. But they did that shit often enough in real life. Yeah. That, like, people believed the stories. Lying you know? is cool and good. Yeah, dude. And we'll talk about it's that, but the, the Mongols yeah. believed that. Yeah. If the end result is a win, who gives a fuck? Yeah. Uh, oh, we're lying? Okay, proof is wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so it is true, even though it might not have been 10 days, that the average Mongol yeah. soldier was incredibly just physically healthy and robust compared to his southern counterparts. Mm-hmm. So they carried water and dehydrated milk paste with them at all times, as well as dried meat to chew on. And mm-hmm. with those three things, they could generally go days pretty comfortably without a meal. Also, when they had access to fresh meat, but not time to cook it, they would just leave it under their saddle. So it got all smushed and, sh- and, and tender. And then they would just eat that because they were <laughs> fucking <laughs> freaks, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Hot ass meat. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so they subsisted almost entirely on protein rich just fucking meat. ripping ass into your oh yeah dude. into Dr- the, drilling the farts into your fucking into yeah. your cube steak yeah <laughs> so uh they their diet was basically entirely meat milk yogurt just protein and so the average mongol had like super strong teeth and bones you know they didn't have like a mouthful of rotten teeth they had good teeth yeah strong bones they were muscular the well-toothed people yeah yeah they were good they were living a good life dude mm-hmm. meanwhile armies in the south uh, and the peasantry in general and agriculture eating societies. their sweets and pastries and getting all <laughs> fucking rotten ass nasty they ass. wish dude they were just straight up eating gruel for like almost every oh. meal for their whole life just like millet <laughs> paste rice that's kind of it dude just all day every day grain which made their teeth shitty, and they were just tired, and they were susceptible yeah. to disease. They had to eat three square meals a day to you know, have yeah. enough energy to get up. Fuck the paleo diet. You want to get on the Mongol horse warrior diet. Yeah. These dudes were just straight up. Even their, milk booze, and yogurt. even their booze was milk, dude. Like they, yeah. were just, they were just straight up meat and milk dudes. That was it. Yeah, you know? yeah, we went, yeah we're the meat and milk boys. Talk about the Gomad <laughs> diet. They were just a, yeah. a gallon of raw horse milk a day. Yeah every day yeah like the, yeah these dudes are on the diet of like the grossest loudest sweatiest dude at the gym yeah yeah 100 <laughs> percent. and they were like this is this this is how a man lives like yeah, just, just that's it dude. just eating raw ass steak dude yeah. and they were probably like you wouldn't want to fight any of these guys yeah just to clarify like i'm probably a foot taller Did- than every single person we're talking about in this story yeah. i would not have fought a fucking mongol to save my life like a yeah. random after Mongol. the age of like twelve, yeah, just a random Mongol would yeah. fuck your shit up. They were scary. Yeah. They were these scary dudes are probably people. dense. You know what I mean? Like yeah, just all muscle. And they're like, "What do you do for fun? Hunt, wrestle, fucking go to war? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like kidnap women? Like they just shoot a bow like hundreds of feet? Yeah, just practice the one thing yeah. I'm excellent at already. You yeah. know, that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah. So, um. So the, the army is extremely mobile, and the individual people and then the decimal unit systems were basically self-sufficient. They're not really requiring any of the infrastructure oh. needed for standing armies as they would spread out really far and just kind of hunt and raid for food as they went. 
Yeah. So when they did have to light fires, uh, they did it at dusk, which I think is really smart. So it's yeah. too light for the fires to be like readily visible, but it's too dark for the smoke to be visible. So they would just kind of light and cook at twilight, and then they would extinguish, and then they would disperse. They didn't sleep around the fire. They didn't even sleep with each other. They would all just go sleep separately. So you couldn't really yeah. ambush like a Mongol army camp because generally it didn't exist. There just wasn't one. Yeah. You know, and they're strung out across miles and miles of, of open country. And again, because every soldier was kept abreast of strategies and plans, uh, coordination is just easier. Even spread this far yeah. apart, everybody knows ultimately, like, hey, man, we're trying to go fight the jerch head. So head south until someone tells you otherwise, you know? Just follow the sound of horse. Yeah, man. Galloping. Yep. Oh. If ever you feel like you're no longer part of the horde, uh, then you should be worried because, you know. Yeah. Just stay in this general direction. Yep. So obviously there were times when orders did need to be changed and passed along. And yep. this was done in a pretty simple but an ingenious manner. Verbally. Because basically everyone in the Mongol army is illiterate. Uh, there isn't even a standardized Mongol script yet. That's something they, they, that... These are like the... These are the... Like the... the elite men. Like these, these are like the... The perfect example of a man. Fucking yeah. just, you don't even know how to read. Fucking, <laughs> just, fucking. No, no distractions, dude. <laughs> Nothing, dude. They're it's like, just like all it's focus. Like, oh, well, time to go to bed. Morning yep. time? Time to go to war. Nighttime? Huh, yep. Bed again. You yep. want to get drunk this time? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, and I got what? some fermented milk over bed. there. You want to maybe fight me naked first? Yeah, sounds pretty kick-ass. Let's do it, you man. Yep. I mean? Yeah, I got, I got like a few minutes to kill before bed, before I wake up to do more killing. I got all this yogurt energy I got to burn off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, um, the only thing that I consume that isn't dairy is, um, yeah, it's just the meat I've got in my saddle. <laughs> yeah, it's warm-ass meat, so. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so I've just been sure. tenderizing, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so verbal orders, uh, even though, you know, theoretically verbal orders are highly fallible right you've all played yeah. we've all played the game telephone you remember that yeah. in school well the message that starts is never the message you get at the and end, you always right? get this one little fucking runt some kid wants like, to change it yeah yeah oh that just changes it completely like, yeah well, i think he said Stinky you can farts. see they're like they're like conspiring like yeah oh mrs johnson is stupid and fat oh, oh, yeah, oh, yes yeah. that's right oh you uh, say that well that's what it's the message yeah Oh, uh, yeah, Mrs. yeah, Mrs. Bender keeps beans in her shoes. <laughs> so the Mongols solved the problem of the highly fallible verbal message uh, by conforming their orders to a fixed set of rhyming melodies and couplets that are easily memorized by yeah. every soldier because they're tunes that they already know. So yeah. soldiers everywhere and people just out doing a job in general like to sing while they work or march. Yeah. And the Mongols are no different. However, in addition to singing about the usual stuff like boobies and gold, uh, they also sang their codes of law and conduct, which had been turned into songs uh, for ease of memorization by a largely illiterate population. These are the ultimate men, dude. Dude, they rock. Dude. Even the, even their songs have yeah. like utility. Yeah, it's great. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of their songs were just like, and I fucked a girl from the step the other day. But a lot of their songs yeah. are just like, remember, don't steal. Remember, don't kill. Genghis Khan yeah. is the lord of us all. Like, it's just what they're doing, man. So military orders were set to the existing melodies of these commonly known songs. And so for a soldier, even a common soldier, remembering orders to pass along is really just as simple as like learning a new verse to a song that you already know and love. Yeah. So yeah, Mongols on the March are fucking awesome. And they just, they had no problem. They made it. They made it all the way to the Jurched lands. No desertions, yeah. no loss, relatively few. And here they are, ready to fucking fight. And the Jurched's like, oh, I mean, fuck, it sounds okay. like it would be the time of your life doing this. So why would you? Yeah, it sounds killer. It sounds killer. 
Yeah. Awesome. It's like a vacation for them. And you know what? Surprisingly, it's going to kind of turn out to be that way. Like, they're not going to have a hard time yeah. at all. So upon reaching Jurched lands, the Mongol campaign began in earnest. And it's going to kind of set the tone for basically all future Mongol conquests against foreign foes. Uh, they will fight different cultures and different types of armies. But the basic model that they use in conquering the Jurched is going to kind of set the tone for everything to come. So I'm going to go into a, a fair amount of detail here, and then in the future we won't have to talk about this stuff quite as much when we talk about fighting, you know, Quarries and, and whatever, Cairo and shit, or Baghdad rather. They never made it to Cairo. Baghdad, whatever. We're not going to talk about as much detail because there's a lot more conquests to come. But uh, we are going to go into it here because I just think it kind of is important. So... Here is how Genghis Khan, in a nutshell, we're going to describe the ways in which he was so adept at warfare, despite being outnumbered and in an unfamiliar territory. So firstly, and we've talked about this already, but just to reiterate, he knew and trusted all of his officers personally. Some, like Burchu and Jelme, we've been talking about since way back in episode three, right? He's known these guys since they were fucking kids. 40 years, some of these people, you know? Uh, so he also knows and values and recognizes their strengths and their weaknesses so he makes sure to assign men to tasks that are well suited to them right mm -hmm. as opposed to just like these are my orders everyone do things the way that i like it done Nah, man borchu might be a little more cautious than Jelme, so borchu gets like the you know sneak attacks and Jelme gets the ambushes you know what i mean it's just he likes to do those are kind of the same thing sneak attacks and yeah ambushes. sneak attacks and ambushes are the yeah. same thing whatever fill in the blanks who gives a fuck we keep one one has to do the harassing of supply lines yeah. the other one yeah you know what i mean like it's yeah. just hit and runs and they're, they're doing different things based on what they're good at yeah and that's why he likes them. He likes that they're different. He doesn't want them all to be the same. Because if they're all the same, yeah. then the enemy can predict what he's going to do. He also yeah. trusts them. When he gives them an order, he lets them fucking take care of it. He knows how to yeah. delegate. He knows his plans are good. He trusts his men. He delegates. Brilliant. Yes. He's the fucking balls, this guy. He also understood uh, the importance of preserving the lives of his men, who could not be easily replaced, especially in foreign lands. Right? They're not from this huge population of people. Basically, every Mongol man is in the army already. Mm -hmm. So if they all die, you don't have another army. This is it. This is what I got. If he could have brought more, he would have. Instead, he's outnumbered more than two to one as it is. So he's got to make do. He's got to keep these guys alive. So he tries to win as many battles as possible without firing a single shot. Now, the Mongols had some experience fighting city dwellers, uh, but they initially lacked the siege weaponry to knock down walls uh, and scale them, et cetera, et cetera. And they are going to sort of pick that up over this campaign. Yeah. Um, but so they rely on scare tactics and guerrilla warfare, and they're really ingenuitive in the way that they conquer cities. So th what they would do, knowing that people were shut up behind their walls, they would swoop in and they would terrorize the countryside, and then they would just dip before anybody could come out and counter them. So before they'd even arrived in any of the densely populated areas – People have started to trickle into the cities telling horror stories about the fucking Mongols and how they came out mm -hmm. of nowhere and nothing could stop them. And they were like a natural disaster and they were yeah. terrifying and whatever. And their so, dicks are all at least 10 inches long. Yeah, dude. It's like all they, they eat is fucking in. yogurt, dude. Like, I don't know what's yeah. up with these hogs on these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they got these yogurt-filled hogs. <laughs> and so they also, they moved to under, <laughs> undermine the existing authority of the Jurched rulers in several ways. First, yeah. 
Before doing anything else, they send emissaries to the dispossessed Kitan, who had previously ruled these lands. And they link up with the Yelu dynasty, who had been the royal dynasty of the Kitan. And they yeah. promise them a chunk of their land back in return for aid. And obviously they find enthusiastic support. So immediately yeah. their, their numbers are bolstered. They've got all these new Kitans signing up to fight with them. And also, you know, eventually they'll start to have like Han Chinese people defecting to them too. Uh, they they uh, find one young member of the Yellow family, a guy named Yellow Chukai, uh, who yep. became an invaluable asset to the Khan. Uh, he could speak Kitan, which is mutually intelligible with the Mongol language, um, but he also spoke Chinese and was well versed in Chinese politics and philosophy. So this bolstered what would become a long-standing tradition in Mongol conquests: find every single smart and useful person you can. And get them on your side, whatever means necessary. Hire them, kidnap them, whatever you got to do. If they've got someone smart that you can use and you think you can fucking get them on your side, do it. It's yeah. worth it. It's worth it every time. Yeah. So the Mongols, who may not have been particularly technologically advanced themselves, proved really, really eager students and fast learners. And they adapt ideas with incredible speed and efficiency. Also, there was this rule. They are forbidden during all of this to discuss death or defeat openly with each other, with outsiders, anywhere. Uh, warriors are expected to live as if they were immortal uh, because Genghis Khan wanted them to survive. He didn't want them to yeah. die and he didn't want any defeatist fucking bullshit going around the camp. So he's like, what are you talking about? We literally can't lose. Yeah. What do you mean two to one? That, I love those odds. Two to one? Yeah. That's it? We like, got them right when we fucking Yeah, dude, are you kidding me? I thought me? we were going to be four to one. Two to one? I love <laughs> having two pussies for every one of me. That shit's yeah, yeah, right? monster, dude. Yep. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I had any wish, what would it be? <coughs> two warriors at the same time. Yeah, I, believe, I believe you can get you can get, get your ass kicked saying something like that, dude. Uh, <laughs> I'd so, kill two warriors at the same time. They, even, they didn't even discuss... <laughs> If they had had casualties in a battle, it's it's a it's a serious taboo. Um, their purpose is not to die for the con. To reiterate, their purpose is to live, and they're living to pursue one goal and one goal only. It's the only goal worth pursuing: mm -hmm. total victory. So, as Jack Weatherford, uh, who I use a lot for this series, puts it, the Mongols did not find honor in fighting; they found honor in winning. So, you know, we talk, we've talk. we talked about, like, the Japanese, for example, who found honor in all kinds of fucking wishy-washy ways. Like, oh, there can be honor in defeat. Oh, you can no. die an honorable death. Nope, Mongols don't believe in any of that. Did you win? No. Honor. Did you lose? No honor. Combat is not honorable unless it ensures victory. Conversely, no. if victory could be achieved without combat through diplomacy, mm -hmm. trickery, deception, the honor of that victory is not diminished in any capacity, nor no. do the tactics used to obtain victory stain the personal honor of the soldiers involved because mm -hmm. they know they're going to have plenty of opportunities to show that they can fucking fight and win the old-fashioned way they yeah. know they're good at that so there's no like oh we got to prove that we're men no 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 they know they're men <laughs> they know yeah. what's up they know that they can do whatever the fuck they need to do so if they can win without fighting that's cool too yep. similarly you can no still join <laughs> the honor honored dead in stovokor that way <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um similarly no honor you could be gained no honor um, no honor could be gained from personal valor or achievement in battle if that battle had ended in loss. Uh, the end always is the only justification for the means. And so this meant that no man is incentivized to act stupidly for personal glory or to the detriment of his unit. You're not going to see a lot of pickets charges going on in the Mongol Wars because that's fucking stupid. No suicide charges, none of that. If you can fucking win, 
win. If you can't, run away. Like, don't no. be a fucking idiot. You know they're what I mean? They're not going to catch you. Yeah, they're not. They're not going to catch us. We're faster <laughs> than the fucking wind. So, yeah. and also we can shoot behind us. So. Hopefully mm-hmm. they do chase us. That's one of their favorite yeah. tactics. Yeah, actually, if they chase us, that actually kind of... That, that fucking kicks ass, dude. That, that, that increases our chances of winning. So, And we'll talk about that, too, because that's one of their favorite tactics. Um, yeah. And so this is where their psychological warfare, uh, like the Undertaker, uh, really gets put uh, to amazing use. Now, the Mongols set out to turn the Jurched huge population into their biggest liability. And they do so with really startling and kind of terrifying effect. So the peasants they encounter were conscripted uh, into a mobile la- uh, mobile labor force. I was going to say a mobile laser force. That would have uh, been cool, too. Be, uh, <laughs> let's give the Mongols lasers. Let's yeah. see how far they can go. Uh, we'd probably be speaking Mongol right now. That'd be cool. If the Mongols had guns, dude, we'd be speaking Oh, Mongol. dude, yeah. Just a Mongol horde coming at you with like a fucking... Nothing even crazy. Muskets. If you gave them muskets, it would have been a fucking lights-out nightmare. Actually, I'm sure their bows were probably better than muskets. Like... The problem with the bows yeah. is that they're not good in certain weather, but yeah, you know, whatever. We'll see that. We'll see that later. Um, so they conscript these peasants into doing everything from like digging latrines to feeding and finding and watering animals to literally just being human shields in battle. Um, yeah. To the Mongols, seeing these peasants who like lived in fields and just ate vegetables all day uh, and kind of were lethargic and shitty and stupid and had to be commanded and everything they did. No yogurt. They were basically livestock, and they they called them goats. They called them the same words they used for, like, sheep and goats Um, because they were just totally complacent. They were grazing all day, hardly ever went hunting or fishing or did any fighting, and they didn't eat meat like humans, you know? They were just these fucking weird, fat, soft cattle, and so that's how they talked about them, and they didn't feel bad killing them. Um, cheese and onions yeah dude uh the mongols who were natural herders they basically just apply that skill to the way that they fucking herd the peasants and use them um they'll either get you to work or they'll just drive you in front of the army to like catch arrows or they'll fucking Mm -hmm. do this other thing which was uh they'll just intentionally drive them out towards cities and send these like mobs of refugees towards you know whatever city they're going to conquer next. So next thing you know, that city, the population is swelling. The roads are choked. There's carts and people, and nothing can move. And the city population just doubled or tripled, and people are freaking out. And there's not enough food, and it's a fucking nightmare. Next thing you know, the Mongols it. show up, and they're like, no. "Oh yeah, we're here to fight. Oh, are you? Is this not a good time? Oh yeah. weird. What do you mean? Oh yeah, a humanitarian crisis? Oh yeah, yeah. No, we did that on purpose." So, uh, so you guys have been low on your calories for the last couple weeks? Yeah, I noticed right. everybody in there looks kind of sick and tired. No, we feel no. good. We've been eating ass meat, so yeah, we're fucking. I'm ready actually. To... I got some extra steaks here yeah. under my balls. We're ready to rock. Some? If you just give up, like you can have some. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can have some of my hot ball steak. <laughs> um. So they would also another thing that they would do that was kind of fucked up is they would use peasants as human battering rams. Like, if they wanted to knock down a gate, they would just be like, hey, you 500 peasants, run at that until it breaks down. Yeah. <laughs> they would just, like, make them slam their bodies against it, which yeah. is horrifying. Even if they don't get the fucking gate down, the people inside are like, dude, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, God, they're throwing shit, more dude. people at us. <laughs> um, the peasants' dead bodies would, like, fill up rivers and moats so the Mongols could just ride across them like crazy nice, shit. Uh, they Zero regard for the lives of, like unworthy fucking yeah. fatty foreign men you know like yeah. us they wouldn't have liked you and me yeah 
What do, like, what do you mean you make show on the internet? Like, yeah. <laughs> send them to the slave pits. <laughs> but where do you keep your uh, bow and ass meat? How many cattle do you have and oh. how many horses? I don't see any steaks <laughs> on that chair that you just stood up from. <laughs> Surely you've eaten your ass meat already then. Yeah. Um, uh, a little early in the day for the the <laughs> the saddle you, steak. You, you oh. just ate yesterday. <laughs> yeah, fat, fat, so fat. Yeah, are you drinking water? Three With meals, bubbles. Yeah, three meals. Um, so Mongol life and the lives of their allies are sacred, as I mentioned. But other life, eh? I mean, you wouldn't be sad if you killed a goat. So why are you sad if you killed a peasant? You know I'd what be I mean? sad if I killed a goat. No, I know, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't be sad if they killed a goat. So they're not sad. That's another notch against me. (laughs) (laughs) You goat lover.
So another fun thing is as the population of these cities swells and the food runs out, time and again, these cities start resorting to cannibalism. So everybody in there is just eating each other. They're going insane. And they're mutinying against the nobles. They're killing the Jurchid nobility. Uh, and they're just like turning the cities over to the Mongols. Because they're like, you guys can't stop them. What the fuck? So yeah. here are a few anecdotes from Weatherford that are brutal and uh, kind of funny about um, fucked up ways that the Mongols like messed. With. They're they're kind of funny. Like the thing about the Mongols mm-hmm. is they're kind of funny. Like they they do things to like deliberately fuck with their enemies uh, yeah. and like laugh at them, and then they kill them all. <laughs> it's yeah. it's really they really like this. They like being at yeah. war. And, Look at uh, the way the soft men eat each other. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking hilarious, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so in Is one... he using a fork <laughs> to eat his neighbor? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so in one uh, episode here, uh, the no. Mongols captured a jerched dignitary en route to a city that is soon to be besieged. And they yeah. dressed one of their own guys up in his clothes and washed him up and got him looking nice like a jerched noble. And they sent him to the city where he convinces them that that's who he is and he's here to help them before the Mongols come. And so he gets in and just starts telling everybody like, oh, no, we already we beat the Mongols. You guys can dismantle your defenses. That's Uh, awesome. You can you can send all the the men back to the fields. No issues. And finally, they believed him. And once the city was totally defenseless, the Mongols just showed up and uh, overnight fucking conquered. Done. Yeah. Uh, In another uh, fun episode. uh, supposedly they went to a city and at the gates they said if you bring us every bird and every cat that you can find in the city we'll let you all live mm-hmm. and so everybody in the city hunts down every bird and every cat and they bring them all to the mongols and once the mongols have them they tied like torches to their tails and just yeah. let the animals loose back into the city and they set the whole city on fire and fucking burned it down yeah so <laughs> whether either of these stories actually occurred is kind of irrelevant um it just sort of illustrates what i mentioned before about like the adeptness of the Mongols at creating propaganda, and even when they didn't create it, like, embracing it, they loved when people made shit up about them. Um, Mm -hmm. If it was a scary story, and it made them seem like genius fucking evil villains, they were all about it. These dudes were like WWF heels, man. They they loved a good story. They were great at mic work, and they they just, they knew how to fucking keep it real. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, uh, uh, the more jerkhead rulers that start hearing these stories and shitting their pants and thinking, like, how could we possibly stop this? Great. Yeah. It's a win. It's a win for the Mongols. Um, and again, it just sort of it, it just sort of ties a, ties up the point about victory is all that matters. Doesn't matter if you had to lie. Doesn't matter if you let a, an untrue story be told. Were you, lie, were you, cheat, and steal. Yeah, man. Eddie Guerrero, baby. Were you sneaky? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. They were kind of like Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, they were the Guerrero brothers, yeah. <laughs> Eddie and Chavel. <laughs> so, uh, beginning in that Tongut campaign of a few years earlier, um, I mentioned that they had seen Chinese siege weapons. And now that they're in sort of China, or the outskirts of China, yeah, they want them. They want that stuff. Because, yeah, they can trick people and they can get into these cities and try the river trick and all that. But it would be super cool to have one of those, uh, whatchamacallits, that throws the rocks, the uh, the trebuchet or the catapult. Yeah. They want that stuff. Um, and so they start kidnapping or recruiting. I also would like a trebuchet. It would be sweet. They start kidnapping and recruiting uh, Chinese engineers. And they start putting these peasants to work building and manning trebuchets, catapults, ballistae, which are like those giant bows yeah. that shoot huge fucking arrows 
Um, and then they also had these these super cool things from the Chinese called fire lances, which is basically just like a carved bamboo tube stuffed with gunpowder that you would ignite, and it would just like spit flames and sparks, and kind of like a flamethrower, but you more just oh, use it like no. if uh, cavalry is approaching. Horses don't really like fireworks being put off in their face, yeah. so you would just like light up the the fucking uh, flame the lances. Roman candle. And yeah, and so they adopt all this shit, and within the span of this one campaign, they're using it. Like they all of a sudden they have siege towers, they have mm-hmm. catapults, they have ballistae. Some of them they captured, but they also start building new ones, and uh, and they're good at it. They figure mm-hmm. it out really quickly, and they realize how susceptible urban armies are to really simple step tactics that like probably wouldn't have tricked them but they're like these people are fucking stupid Uh, they don't they don't expect any of this stuff it's like they want us to just march onto the field and fight them why would we fucking do that that shit sucks so they'll do things like they'll something that they call like the falling star maneuver where it's just like Mm -hmm. if you're in a city in a valley this is best because you can like have dudes pour down the hills from like uh all directions and just charge at you know a city and like launch fucking uh, arrows into the city or whatever or or a town or a camp or an army or whatever and then just turn tail and fucking disappear mm-hmm. and then just leave and it's you don't just keep doing it you just do it once and then for the next week that group of men is like when are they coming back when are they coming back nobody sleeps everybody's freaked yeah. out and you might come back you might not they love that shit um yeah. they also they love fake retreats so one of Genghis Khan's generals Jebe was famous for being just quick and aggressive with his tactics. And he was like a master of the feigned retreat. So in yeah. the siege of the city of Liaoyang, Jebe is like harassing the gates. And then yeah. suddenly he calls a retreat and everybody retreats and they very sneakily drop a bunch of valuables behind them. And mm-hmm. they, they retreat, they go out, out of, out of sight, out of mind. And of course, you know, the armies from inside the city sort of run out ostensibly to pursue, but Let's be honest. They start seeing a bunch of gold and silver. They see and some booty on the yeah, ground. and they're like, "All right, let's start collecting that." And next thing you know, the whole battlefield is covered with people distracted picking things up. The gates of the city have opened. People are trying to get carts and animals out to like collect as much as they can. Yeah. And then Jebe appears and he's like, "All right, kill them all." <laughs> and he fucking yeah. runs up and just murders everybody. And they're like, "Wait, but you, but you ran away. You weren't supposed to come back. Oh, we thought no we take won." Backsies. No take backsies. Yeah. And people and and the thing is, take backsies, take backsies, and, yeah. and this this legitimately shocked people. They weren't yeah. prepared for this because yeah. they were like, "You're not supposed to run away. That's that's cowardly." And he's like, "I don't know, man. You guys are all dead." So actually, what's cowardly <laughs> is getting an arrow in your gut yeah. while you're trying to pick up some gold. Fucking, you were too worried. That's about, pretty dishonorable. You were pretty pretty worried about all that gold there. My yeah. guys, you know what they're worried about? Ass steak. Killing you guys. Yeah, killing you. Um, so this, this this shows the, the, the Mongols very quickly realized that the motivations, uh, that their motivations were radically different than the motivations of sedentary urban defenders. The defender's Ooh. main goal is to drive away the attacker. A nomadic attacker's goal is to kill the enemy. So yeah. if you convince the defender that they've achieved their goal, they will let their guard down and give you the opportunity to achieve yours 100% of the time. So yeah. if you give them the smallest taste of victory and convince them that they've scared you away with your advanced weaponry and shit, mm-hmm. they will let their guard down and then you can just swoop in and kill them all. And it works yep. over and over and over again. Because mm-hmm. city people always think they're better than little country bumpkins from the steppe. They just yeah. assume, how could, how could we not have scared them away? 
We're so great. Yeah. Our city's so great. You know who doesn't give a fuck about cities? Genghis Khan. Yeah. The legend about him is that he steps in one city ever in his entire life. He yeah. never sleeps in one. He spends every single night in a fucking tent of his entire life. Yeah. He doesn't care. He thinks cities are fucking whack. But yeah. he wants all I the good shit. I bet he stepped in more than one. Yeah. But the legend is that he stepped in one. Yeah. And it's not... We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes clear at this point in the campaign. And I don't know if you guys are picking this up. But the Mongols are steamrolling the Jurchids. They're just... They're having a ball. They're having a good-ass fucking time. Yeah. And frankly, they probably could have wrapped this shit up in under a year. But no. they encounter what proves to actually be their biggest threat on campaigns like this. It's the climate. Yeah. They're, they don't like the heat. And even in northern China, which we would all probably consider pretty temperate and cool, the Mongols mm-hmm. are like, yo, what is this fucking lame-ass, like, warm bullshit? Like, yeah. the summer rolls along, and they are hating it. It is humid. Yeah. Their bows don't like the humidity. They're held together by natural glue, so the bow, the bows don't work as well. They lose tension. The guys start getting sick. So I mentioned how healthy all the Mongols are, but the downside of that is that people in cities, they live so close to each other. They have all these germs and diseases, and their, mm-hmm. immune, their immune system is really strong. The Mongols don't have that. They live far apart. They don't fucking sleep with their animals and shit. They're just they're – not, they're not as prone to – or they're much more prone to. They're not as immune to diseases as the city people are. So the summer months roll around, and they're just like, all right, we got to take a break. So what they'll do is they'll fight – in the 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 fall and the winter and the spring and then they retreat back to inner mongolia to make camp where the climate is more to their liking and they just wait it out they know the jurchheads aren't going to come after them they're fucking licking their wounds so they literally just party all summer and they're just they're like on vacation they're on tour so for three years they do this they're just they go and they fight they conquer another city they pick up more siege mechanics they fucking learn shit they they're having a good time and then they go back they hang out in inner mongolia and they mm-hmm. fucking eat fucking good-ass wild meat and drink milk and mm-hmm. party. And then the year ends and it's time to go back. Yep. Um, but by 1214, it's time to start wrapping things up. Genghis Khan hasn't been home for three years. Uh, he's been campaigning against the Jurchhead nonstop. Obviously taking summers off to fucking rage. And so finally it's time to besiege uh, the Golden Khan's capital at Zhongdu. Which again is modern Beijing. Mm-hmm. Spurred on by the disastrous defeats uh, against the Mongols and the pressure of internal peasant revolts and royal revolts, uh, a recent palace coup has actually overthrown the previous uh, Jurchhead Khan, the one who initially demanded submission of Chinggis. Uh, that has proven to be a, a pretty foolish decision. Everyone's kind of regretting that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And the new Golden Khan is like, I was elected based on my willingness to talk numbers with you guys. So he yep. immediately is just like, yeah, I'm I'm all good. Let's negotiate. And uh, Genghis Khan's all about that. He likes yep. to negotiate. If you come forth in good faith, he will hear your demands. Yep. So they call a meeting and they agree to a settlement that would have made the previous Golden Khan probably rethink sending that envoy in the first place if he knew how it was going to end up. But, yep. you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So they're given piles of silks and gold and silver and thousands of horses and 500 young men and women as slaves. And even one of the Khan's daughters goes to Genghis Khan as a little wifey. Yep. Now, perhaps most importantly, the Golden Khan acknowledges himself as a loyal, subservient vassal to the clearly superior great Khan of the steppe, our boy, Genghis Khan. And I don't know if you remember... But the initial idea was that Genghis Khan was supposed to come down here and bow to the Golden Khan. 
Now yeah, you got this motherfucker. You're the one wearing knee pads. Now yeah, man. Suddenly this motherfucker's putting on his now chapstick. Now you're polishing his, uh, <laughs> his uh, knob down there. Huh? Absolutely. And in response to this, the great and magnanimous Genghis Khan said, cool, sounds good. Thanks for the blowjob, yep. bud. That rocked. <laughs> Thank you very much. And he breaks yep. off the siege and he goes on his merry way. Oh, how the turntables. <laughs> um, over the course of the previous three years, he had uh, allowed the Khitan to reclaim a good chunk of their former kingdom and set them up with, with a kingdom again. And the Jurched are now still in control, but they're ruling a much diminished kingdom of their own, uh, which they're going to be allowed to keep. Ostensibly, each of these groups is just going to kind of balance each other out. They both have now sworn allegiance to Genghis Khan. And he doesn't really care to, like, personally administer. He's like, you guys can rule. That's what he does. He let the Tonguts and the Uyghurs continue to rule as long as the tribute keeps coming. And if I call you, you come fight for me. Yeah. I want good shit, and I want loyalty. I don't need to... I don't need to be in charge. You guys can handle your shit. You can do this lame shit y'all like to do down here. But look at me right your now. Whack ass food. I'm uh, the boss. As long as you pick up the phone when I call. When I call, you pick up yeah. the phone. I love that. That's perfect. Yeah. When when Big Papa Jingus calls, you are never too busy. Yeah. You got the time. <clears throat> you got the time for Jingus. Because I know you don't. You don't have the time for us to come back down here yeah, and yeah. do this again. Nobody's got time for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do. I've I'll got be honest time for with that. you. This has been a blast. I'm almost <laughs> hoping you say no. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, I'm a man of my word. Yeah. So, since it's already too hot, it's too late in the season to cross the Gobi. Because the Gobi's a desert. I mean, it gets cold in the winter, but it does get very hot in the summer. So, they also have to wait. The Mongols have to wait another summer to cross back before they can go home. But they head back up to Inner Mongolia. They figure, what's one more summer partying in Inner Mongolia? Then we'll take all of our booty and we'll head back home. This is the greatest haul that any Mongol Khan has ever brought back. People are going to fucking love us. They're going to think mm -hmm. we're the shit. Everybody's going to be super happy. This was a total success. And most of his men are still alive. And he's also, if anything, he's got more men now because a bunch of Han Chinese and Ketons and even Jurcheds have defected. They're like, this guy fucking rules. I want to fight yep. for him. And so they do. So, <clears throat> unfortunately, city types are tricksy. So basically, as soon as Genghis Khan is out of sight, the Golden Khan is like, we got to get the fuck out of here. And he evacuates yeah. the, the entire city um, and moves his capital south to the city of Kaifeng. Uh, and he's basically assuming that that's far. There's no way the Khan does that have a modern there. day equivalent. Kaifeng might still be Kaifeng. Yeah, Kaifeng yeah, is just still Kaifeng. Yeah. Um, it's in central Hunan province. <clears throat> yep. One of the eight ancient capitals of China. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's not that far from Beijing. No. It's still pretty close. So he moved the court south to Kaifeng. Um, and word of this reaches Genghis Khan. And without waiting for the Golden Khan to do anything else, he's like, um, why are you leaving? I liked where you were. He raised that eyebrow. Yeah, he's like, that smells like you're going to try to betray me. So that rather than like being... some Southron bullshit. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to wait for you to fucking gather your strength and do some dumb shit. I'm coming back. So he tells his men, he's like, sorry, but the Golden Khan's being a punk. We got to go set him straight. So they march on Zhongdu. They find that the Golden Khan has, in fact, left. And they said, well, we're already here. And you guys had it pretty good last time. Yep. And so he looks he's at his men and he says, you fucking raise the city. Fucking yep. pillage it. 
Everything. I want everything. Yeah, he does the, uh, Lord help me, but it's time to go back to the old me. <laughs> yeah, <thing>. exactly. <laughs> exactly. They made me choose violence. Yeah. Um, Just when I think I got out, <laughs> they pulled me back in. Back in. <laughs> so, uh, he basically looks at that city and he's like, I want everything. So... At this point, uh, in addition to, you know, normal steppe nomads, I've mentioned that his army also includes Ketons, some Jurchheads, and there's actually a lot of Han Chinese that are, like, yeah. just down to fight for the Khan. And mm-hmm. so he looks at this city, and he figures, like, I don't really know the first thing about pillaging cities, but you guys can probably find all the good places where city people would hide their good shit. So he yeah. trusts... Uh, one of his generals, who's uh, one of the leaders of the Ketan, a guy named Kada, uh, he says, Kada, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to leave you in charge of looting this city. And I want you to bring everything to me. So as we discussed in last episode, one of the reforms that Genghis Khan instituted was uh, loot was now a standardized process. Everything went back to the Khan and then was redistributed evenly according to rank. So rather than every man scrambling to get his own shit, the Khan took a chunk and then he distributed it to his generals who then distributed it to their guys and so on and so forth. There's a certain amount that's set aside for the widows of people that are killed in battle. Everybody gets their fair share according to their role and what they do in the army. But either the memo didn't get to the Khitan and the Han that are now doing the looting or they just didn't care. They didn't take it seriously. They just start running amok. And... They start taking things, and they're not following orders. And the Mongol officials that were left behind to observe start taking bribes to let them do it. And finally, you know, Genghis Khan at this point has made it back to Inner Mongolia. And he's like, what is taking so long? I want my stuff. Yep. And so he sends Shigi Kutuku, who was a young Tartar boy who was his adopted brother, um, who is now the chief judge of the Mongols. Sends him down to personally observe. And you know if Shigi Kutuku's showing up, mm-hmm. uh, you probably did something wrong. Yep. Because Chingus doesn't just send him to, like, observe rudimentary things. Shigi Kutuku shows up, and you know that the eye of Sauron is upon you. Yeah. And he shows up, and can you believe it? The fucking Ketons look at him, and they say, oh, do you want to bribe like these other guys? Do you uh, oh look the God. other way? And Shigi Kutuku's like, do, do I want to bribe? Motherfucker, do you know how good I have it? Absolutely yeah. not. You just gave it all away, bud. The Khan's going to hear about this, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. he goes back to Inner Mongolia. and He, he says, doesn't even say anything. He just, They ask him for the bribe. He goes, just turns his horse yeah. around and just goes back. All right. It's going to be like that then. So, no, really, it's like that. He's just like, yeah. okay. Um, bad choice. Made my job easy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I didn't even have to judge shit. <laughs> so he, he fucking turns around he tells Genghis Khan he's like yeah there it's all kinds of mayhem down there and yeah. uh word of what Genghis Khan did to the Ketons yeah has not been preserved but the the sacred history says that they were uh stripped of their command of the looting and they were yeah. uh sternly rebuked so uh somebody definitely got fucking killed over that yeah. uh because you don't just break the laws of of, of Genghis Khan you just don't do it <laughs> nope. And he's like, look, I'm not even, I'm fair. And all the Mongols are like, why do you guys have to do that? You're going to yeah. get fucking gold. He's a man yeah. of his word. I swear. I know it sounds unbelievable. But this guy, he follows through. Yeah. And so, you know, they take all the money back and 
I bet you a bunch of those looters didn't get any share of it. But I will tell you what, this earned him a lot of respect among the ranks. People loved him for it because mm -hmm. he was a man of his word. And at this point, this is also worth mentioning, uh, people are starting to whisper that yeah. maybe the Jurchheds and maybe not even the Song Dynasty in the South, they might not yeah. have the Mandate of Heaven. Do you yeah. remember the Mandate of Heaven? Oh, I know what the Mandate of Heaven is. So to our listeners who might not remember, uh, we talked a lot about the Mandate of Heaven in episodes 25 and 27 from the summer of 2021, which is crazy, which were our Opium Wars episodes. Um, the Qing Dynasty, who are the distant relatives of these same Jurchheads, uh, were said to have lost the Mandate when the British were able to just kind of run over them and take whatever they wanted. People yeah. are starting to say that about the, uh, the Jurchheads, and they're worried about the song. They're like... You guys might not have like the the backing of 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 heaven behind you, if yeah. if Genghis Khan can just run through here and make you all look like fucking assholes. Yeah, he might have it. He might be like who heaven wants to rule these lands, yeah. and so that's starting to kind of permeate, and people are just getting more and more. Because not only is he great in battle, but they're seeing that he's also an able administrator. And uh, I don't know, man, guy's looking pretty good. Mm -hmm. Even if he is a smelly horse lord. Yep. The Mongols take over the looting. They make sure everything mm -hmm. gets done the right way. And then on their way out of Jurchhead territory, they have one final mission. The The Khan wanted this land, all this plowed, farmed land that had now mm -hmm. been basically like uh, desolated and had all of its peasantry run off and killed and mm -hmm. whatever. He really likes the idea of there being more pasture and grassland south of the Gobi. Because yeah. he's got plans to come back. Uh, yeah. He does want to find the Golden Khan. He doesn't like what he did. He doesn't like how he left the city. Not mm -hmm. really his, his thing. He's like, I do need to go home. It's been three years. But, like, I want you guys to churn up all that farmland and, and let nature reclaim it. Because when I mm -hmm. come back, I want grass for my horses, baby. Because mm -hmm. I am coming back with... Some a lot of horses. A lot of horses next time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he's not done with this area, but he's like, I'm going to go home. But uh, I want you to – so they trample all the farmland with their horses and basically destroy all of the fields and, and with the idea being that the grasslands will, will return. And uh, next time he comes back, mm -hmm. he means business. Yeah. So throughout uh, 1215 and 1216 – Genghis Khan and his army slowly set out to return to their their home steppe, laden with unimaginable riches, totally unprecedented in the history of steppe Khans raiding the south. Now, they already had the greatest haul of all time, but now that they've gone back and sacked Shengdu after the Golden Khan ran away, they yeah. have, like, doubled their earnings from the whole war. Because, I mean, the Golden Khan left and didn't take anything with him, so they raided his palaces, all the fucking houses, everything. Anything that wasn't tied down and some things that were... Yeah have been take, taken back silk especially flows into the mongolian steppe and there's so much of it that in the span of just a couple of years the mongols not only are all wearing silk but they've started using silk to like make ropes they use it as just like bags to carry other shit in they have so much silk that they don't even know what the fuck to do with it they are silk in colors that they don't even have words for Shit yeah. that they've never seen before in their lives. Embroidered, colored, covered in beautiful pictures of flying birds and flowers and whatever. So they are just drowning in silk. Mm -hmm. Rugs, clothing, slippers, tapestries, anything you can imagine. But also gold, silver, precious stones, every single piece of jewelry you can possibly imagine. 
um, combs and goblets and whatever, lacquered wooden furniture, porcelain vases, metal armor and weapons, makeup, medicine, spices, salt, honey, all of the luxuries that a step nomad could desire and things that they've never even dreamed of. Suddenly, mm -hmm. just the poorest Mongol has access to all of this. Um, and it, it, on a level that they can't even imagine. They're just like, just flooded with riches. And then that's not to mention the number of people that they bring back. There's musicians, engineers, craftsmen, clerks, physicians, architects, acrobats. Basically anybody interesting or trained in any kind of useful skill. The, the con just sent out a, a directive like anybody that seems worth it, just grab them, bring them back. Mm -hmm. Whether they want to or not, like we're bringing them back. Tailors, translators, priests of a hundred different religions, astrologers, magicians, mystics, psychics, they're all drawn now to the epicenter of Genghis Khan's personal universe. Every Mongol warrior could dress himself in embroidered silks and hang golden ornaments in his hair, could paint his wife with exotic makeup and perfume his home with beautiful scents. It's prosperity on an immediate and grand scale. And you know what? Mm -hmm. It's not enough. Giving his people a taste of these things sparks an immediate desire for more. Because you know what? It wasn't even hard getting it. No. That's what they all keep saying. They're like, you would not fucking believe how easy it was mm -hmm. to have all of this. How, could, how come we didn't have this longer? And how come we don't have more? Yep. His people had now seen this for themselves. And the, 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 the floodgates were opened. Plus, there's been word from the north. The Siberians that they had subjugated, they've stopped paying tribute. And word has it that they've organized under a new female chieftain and that they've kidnapped a bunch of Mongol emissaries. So now he's got to go deal with that. And then in the West, there's Muslim Uyghurs who are chafing under their Buddhist lords and they're basically begging the Khan to come and fucking liberate them and rule over them. Uyghurs fucking love Genghis Khan. They love him. Yep. <laughs> uh, and beyond them... There's the land of the sultans with unimaginable riches along with the vast knowledge of the cosmos that has yet to be seen. But the Mongols realize that they like this technology stuff that all of a sudden they're getting into. And they keep hearing that these Muslims have created wonders that the human mind can't comprehend. And so they're like, oh, that's sounding pretty good too. If they're mm -hmm. as pussy as these jerk heads, I mean, why not? <laughs> Let's learn yeah, algebra, baby. Free real estate. <laughs> right? It's literally, it is free real estate. Uh, and then plus, there's still the traitorous Jurched Khan, and beyond him, the Song Dynasty. And if the Jurcheds could have taken that land from the Chinese, and we could take all that land from the Jurcheds, why don't we go fight the Song? Mm -hmm. Now, without getting too far ahead of myself, the Song Dynasty is still no fucking joke. And the mm -hmm. Jurcheds could not have taken them on if they tried. So yeah. Genghis Khan has his work cut out for him. And some of these sultans in the Middle East are also no fucking joke. Yeah. Right? But he's getting these ideas, and he's thinking to himself... I'm 53 years old, and all of a sudden, it seems like my future is still completely ahead of me. Mm -hmm. I could do all these things. And where before, he never had these global ambitions, and he still kind of doesn't. I mean, by all accounts, he kind of frames things as, like, one battle after another. Like, But it's just mm -hmm. starting to seem like there's more and more battles to fight. And if he's this good at winning, why not fight them? Yeah. Like, if that's my destiny, who am I to deny that? So, suddenly... The future's looking brighter than ever. Yeah, everything's coming up, Genghis. Everything is coming up, Genghis. And yeah. so that's it for episode uh, six of the Mongols. Uh, and from here on out, it's basically 
a race to see how many things Genghis Khan can conquer before he kicks the bucket. Yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so there's there's still plenty to see. And uh, he's now, he's, 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 he's on world tour. We'll mm-hmm. just say that. Genghis yep. Khan has left the left the home nest, and he is no. he's on world tour. Correct. And that's it. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, man, I feel pretty good about it. Uh, well, thank you guys for listening. Um, we are excited for 2024. We've got mm-hmm. lots of cool things in the tank ready for you guys. Yep. And uh, like I said, I'm gonna try to to crank out at least a few more Mongols episodes kind of back-to-back so that the series doesn't get stretched out because back in September, that's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, To reiterate, you can find all of our series episodes. Um, Do you want to hear more about Evan's history of the Kings of Britain? You Mm -hmm. can find that in there. It's in there. They're all in order. It's called LU Series, and it's right on Spotify. Um, Also, all of the songs that we use, uh, those are on a playlist called LU Rippers. You can find that if you're ever curious. Hey, what's a song uh, from the show? They're all on there. Um, also you can find us on Patreon. Um, this is going to be the year where we try to, we did kind of like a soft launch of the Patreon in 2023 Mm -hmm. just to get it rolling and see how it worked and everything. But I think this is going to be the year where we really try to have that take off. So, you know, send us feedback. We would love to hear from you guys on like what sort of things would inspire you to join the Patreon, what kind of content you'd be interested in. Cause I think 2024 is the year where we're thinking about trying to, yeah. implement some of that stuff and that and that's at patreon.com backslash left on red mm-hmm. most of our stuff is left on red pod but that is just left on red um yeah. and the links to all of that stuff will be in the show notes as always mm-hmm. uh but yeah uh, seriously i'm not joking about that if you guys have feedback on like what would be you know worth it to you as a listener yeah. of this show um we want to hear that because that's yeah. what we want to do and we would love to um we would love to have that mm-hmm. turn into like a more I don't want to say worthwhile because I think it's worthwhile already, but yeah, worth it to you. We want it to feel like it's worth it to you. If you're giving us yeah. your money, we know how hard you work for that because we work just as hard for what little we have. Yep. And so we want to work hard for your money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, It would be nice uh, for this to be a little bit more sustainable. So. Totally, totally. Yeah. So um, let us know um, either by email or you know on Twitter or whatever, and we will take all ideas into consideration. Correct. Unless you want us to start doing like yaoi stuff with each other, because yeah. we already do that, but it is not. It's just for That's fun. That's a personal, personal, uh, private, private little uh, interface. We call it team building. Yeah. So, all right, uh, Evan, do you have anything to add? Nope, I don't. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys as always for joining us. We love you all dearly, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Left Unread. <laughs>